Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Vance Havner was widely recognized as one of America's most traveled evangelists and popular Bible conference speakers. A native of North Carolina, he began preaching at the age of 12. Havner said, The Lord made it clear to my heart that if I would preach the old message, He would make a way for me. Havner remembers reading J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. This book encouraged Vance to return to his old ways. Today's sermon is on Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the Church of Pergamos. But we certainly want to gather what terrific lessons our Lord has for us in these words tonight from Revelation 2, beginning with verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a new stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Pergamos was a very wealthy and fashionable city of temples. It was a medical center. It had the world's second largest library, second only to the one at Alexandria. It was a center of emperor worship, and Antipas had already died for his uh, devotion to the faith, as we've just read. It must have been a very wicked city, because it is spoken of twice in this letter as the place where Satan's seat is and where Satan dwelleth. Somebody has called it Hell's headquarters. But that's a good place for a church because a church is supposed to let its light shine in a dark place. They, they don't need a light in a light place. They that are whole need not the physician, but they that are sick. So we also read here that it was not only the place where Satan dwelled, but where thou dwellest. The devil was in Pergamos, but God had his pinch of salt in all that corruption. There's a beautiful truth that grows out of this beloved, somewhat akin to what we thought of this morning. God knows where you dwell. There are two sides to that. If you're living where you ought not live, God knows it, and you ought to get up and move. But also, God knows your circumstances. <clears throat> Saints living in homes where it's hard to be a Christian. Businessmen in hard situations, faithful to Jesus Christ. Invalids tempted to give up the good fight. Would that all of them could hear our Lord say, I know where thou dwellest. Maybe somebody in the congregation tonight feels like saying, Preacher, you don't know where I have to live. You don't know what a situation I'm in. No, I don't. But there's one who does, and he knows where you dwell. 
But this letter is spoken to a church, and it begins with a threefold commendation. I know thy works. Thou holdest fast my name. Thou hast not denied my faith. I wish he could say that about every church. You're a working church. You're true to the name of Christ, and you're loyal to the faith. That's a lot to say about a church. And yet a church can have all of that to its credit and still need to repent. This church did. I've gone to churches where I've heard more fine things than that about them. Sometimes I go to a church for meetings and they say, well, now, this church is all right. We are sound in the faith and hard at work. And then I wonder why they had me to come. They don't seem to need a thing in the world. <clears throat> Pergamos was in pretty good shape. And still our Lord said, repent or else. Notice, just as he said to Ephesus, he said, I have a few things against thee. Now, what was wrong at Pergamos? Thou hast there them. There are two kinds of people in this letter. He deals with those whom he speaks of as thee, and then he deals with those whom he speaks of as them. Uh, them refers to the Balaamites in the church, and thee refers to the good people in the church who put up with the Balaamites. The good people in the church, strangely enough, were called upon to repent, not the Balaamites. But the Lord is saying to the good people in the church, repent for tolerating the Balaamites. And something often overlooked in this letter, I think. Our Lord distinguishes between thee and them. And it is the church, the faithful church, that he commands to repent. Now the trouble at Ephesus was lovelessness. The trouble here is laxity. They were trying to be broad-minded and tolerant toward Balaamites when they needed to use discipline. Well, what is Balaamism? Of course, to know something about Balaam, we have to go back to Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Balaam was one of the strangest characters in the Bible. Spurgeon quotes Erskine saying, To good and evil equal bent and both a devil and a saint. Joseph Parker said he was the Simon Magus of his day. Alexander McLaren said Balaam tried to make the best of both worlds. He ran with the hare and hunted with the hounds. We never get away from Balaam in the Bible. All the way through and to the end of the New Testament, we read about the way of Balaam and the error of Balaam and the doctrine of Balaam. Here was a man who had unusual gifts. I don't know of any finer rhetoric any greater eloquence anywhere in the Bible, if that's what you're looking for, than came from the lips of this strange character. Listen to this. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And then further on, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. I challenge you to find any finer eloquence anywhere in the Bible than this. He was the William Jennings Bryan of the Old Testament. He was an orator. But 
The trouble with this preacher was that he loved money and he was trying to be true to God on one hand and rake in a few dividends on the other. Not the first preacher, of course, who got that in his head, but it never works. Balak sent for Balaam to come over to curse Israel. Got over there, three times he wound up blessing them instead. Then the devil got into him. And he said, if I can't curse them, I'll corrupt them. <clears throat> I'll advise Balak to set a trap. So they put on these feasts of Baal Peor. Numbers 25, 1 to 3, 31, verse 16. 24,000 people were killed by divine judgment. The men of Israel came over to these pagan feasts and fell into sin with the women of Moab. And not only were 24,000 men slain by the Lord, but Balaam himself died, Numbers 31, verse 8. The man who stood on Pisgah and said, Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. The trouble with him was he was willing to die the death of the righteous, but he was not willing to live the life of the righteous. And you can't die the death of the righteous if you're not willing to live the life of the righteous. He probably encouraged the Israelites to sin by telling them that you're the covenant people. You're under the blood. You can do as you please. And no harm will come from it. Centuries later, this same dangerous doctrine corrupted Pergamos and led to fornication and idolatry. Now the church had already taken a stand on both those evils. In the 15th chapter of Acts, they took a stand on it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about it. He said, if eating meat offered to idols cause my brother to stumble, I will eat no meat while the world standeth. But we have Balaamites in the church today, perhaps more than we've ever had before. They say that it's no harm mixing with the world, that when you're in Rome, it's all right to do like Rome does. You're under the blood. You'll die the death of the righteous, whether you live the life of the righteous or not. Antinomianism, we call it. Liberty into license. We never had more Balaamites. We call them worldly Christians. There is no such thing. Billy Sunday used to say, you might as well talk about a heavenly devil. Worldly Christian, what sort of misnomer is that after all? One way to identify these Balaamites is they always hide behind half a verse of Scripture. You know, you can get into a lot of trouble with half a verse of Scripture. And they take, for instance, this half verse of Scripture. All things are lawful. Now that's half a verse of Scripture. And that's right as far as it goes, but it's not all the verse. You'll find it three times in the New Testament. All things are lawful. And each time the next word is, but... Now there's a, a qualification put on it. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. The word expedient there doesn't mean what we mean by expediency today, anything that pays. It has to do with footwork, running the race. All things are lawful. Sure, I can do this and do that, but some things don't help me run my race as a Christian. I'm to lay aside every weight and sin with its clinging foes, and run with patience the race that's set before me. Some things may be lawful, but they don't help me run the race. Then in the very same verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful, but 
I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not allow anything in my life that makes a slave out of me. The test of expediency, the test of enslavement. Some time ago I rode along in a car with a preacher uh, who, in whose church I was preaching, and he took that old pipe out of his mouth and said, you know that thing's bigger than I am. And he simply meant to say that he was a slave to it. And how many times we start out with uh, what uh, begins as a hobby and becomes a hobble, and we are enslaved to it. All things are lawful, but 1 Corinthians 10:23, all things are lawful, but all things do not edify. Now, edify there does not mean that comfortable feeling that you sometimes have at a Bible conference when you've heard your favorite preacher and go out with some epigrams stowed away in your notebook. That's not what edification means. It <clears throat> means here, some things don't build me up. Edifice, you know. Some things don't help me build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Some things are wood and hay and stubble, and they'll go up in smoke at the final great day. Now, beloved, let me ask you here tonight. We've no time to waste. We're here on business. You Christians, are you allowing anything in your life that cannot uh, clear these three hurdles? You say it's lawful, I'll do it, I can do it if I want to, yes. But <clears throat> how about the test of expediency and the test of enslavement and the test of edification? Then there are other folks who hide behind another half of verse of Scripture. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Well, thank God he does. And I'm glad he does, because otherwise some of them would be pretty hard to identify. But that's not all the verse. The rest of it says, But let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I tell you, Christians don't live any old way. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And my Bible says that the man who makes sinning his business the man who lives in the willful, uh, habitual practice of sin has neither seen nor known God. Revival is hampered and hindered in many a church today, sometimes by these uh, things that won't clear the hurdles, and they give the church a bad reputation. Now, I said last night that I thought uh, unlove hindered revival more than worldliness and modernism, and I do think so. But that isn't to say that these things don't hinder it, too. I was in a meeting in a town some time ago where we didn't get very far. And if I'd have known at the first of the week what I knew at the last of the week, I would have preached perhaps a bit differently. I found that most of the ladies of the church sat around at card tables all week and then turned out and expected God to bless the meeting. You can't strike a deal like that with the Lord. I don't know why you can't take some of these passages of Scripture and make a very pertinent and practical application of them. They say, well, don't spe uh, be specific, just generalize. Well, the Bible doesn't generalize. They didn't play cards, of course, in Paul's time, so you don't have any verses about card playing. Uh, card playing was invented in China, they say, by a feeble-minded emperor, and since then all feeble-minded people have enjoyed playing cards. But I tell you what you can do. 
You can take 1 Corinthians 8, and if you can't cover any kind of a doubtful situation today in the life of church members with that, I don't know, I don't know what it's for. We don't eat meat offered to idols here in America. Why can't you apply it this way? If any man see thee which has knowledge, sit at a card table. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to play cards? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if playing cards make my brother to offend, I will play no cards while the world standeth. Now don't get mad at me. Uh, you go home pray about it. And face this scripture. Get out on your knees and face this. If this is your I just use this as an illustration. You can't cover all of it in a few minutes. There, it, that may not be your trouble at all. But why can't we take these divine principles laid down in the word of God and be specific about them? The other evil in this day was uh, fornication. And beloved, that hasn't disappeared from the church. I preached a great deal a few years ago on sins of the Spirit, and I still do some. I do think that sins of the Spirit perhaps cause more trouble than sins of the body and the flesh in the, in the church. And yet we must not soft-pedal the sins of the flesh. Too many church members need sermons on rioting, drunkenness, chambering and wantonness, words that cover a multitude of transgressions. I'm amazed at how many religious workers today can do unbelievable things, awful things, fall into grievous moral transgression and actually seem to get promoted. I don't know how they do it with communication like it is today. There was a time when a fellow could be crooked and maybe over in uh, Virginia and then go out to Washington State and nobody would ever know about it but with things like they are now I don't know how they get away with it I'm talking about unrepentant people now if a brother's all broken up and repents as here at Corinth uh, then that's a different situation but what shall we say beloved about religious workers today to say nothing of government workers guilty of sins that I never heard of when I was a boy unmentionable things and yet seem to go on and uh, without repentance and seem to be accepted they were proud of their tolerance at Corinth but when Paul got through with that crowd they weren't proud they were rather uh, gloating over other things chasing pet preachers around Paul, Cephas and Apollos Paul said why don't you do something with that immoral man in the church there are very sensitive church members today who resent the preacher who calls on Pergamos to do something about Balaam, but they can sit in vile shows and cackle at filth and obscenity. They don't even have to go down the street to see it now since the devil has brought it into the living room. God helped them to see the Lord of the lamp stands with his sharp two-edged sword saying, if you don't do something about him, I will. If you don't deal with Balaam, I will fight against them. Now, one does not ordinarily think of Jesus in that connection. I will fight against them. But it's the Lord who says that. Now here's where the church comes in, beloved. If you don't deal with Balaam, he says, I will. 
I don't think anything besets us in the church today quite so much as false tolerance. We have a notion that it's noble and Christ-like to put up with Balaamism. It's laxity. We allow conditions that God expects us to correct. We sin when we tolerate what God condemns and look some other way instead of facing up to it. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, not tolerate it. Uh, abhor that which is evil, don't put up with it. Abstain from the very appearance of evil, don't give it a place to grow. The world is infested today and we owe it to the church, the corporate body of believers, to guard them against anything that may infect them. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You have to regard the rights of the church as a corporate body as well as the rights of the individual. When Paul called on the church at Corinth to deal with that immoral brother, he was thinking not only about the sin of that individual but the rights and the purity of the church. But we're so sentimental today that uh, we want to excuse Balaam. We feel so sorry for him and we say, well, don't do anything about it. Why call attention to him when there are so many good people? We risk the health of the entire church because we won't deal with one member. I know a lady who had an infected foot and it became necessary to amputate it. And she didn't want the surgery performed. She rebelled against it and pretty nearly died. She risked her entire body for the sake of one diseased member. We cannot risk the health of the whole church for one diseased member. At Cannon Beach, Oregon last week in the Bible conference, or no, it was at Bellingham, Washington in the first conference, the brother who was with me on the program said, the church is more important than any of its members. And that's a great statement. I was in a trial down in my part of the country. I attended a trial of three religious youth re leaders. <clears throat> And uh, some people defended them in a sentimental way, saying, now these fellows are just starting out in the ministry and we oughtn't discourage them, even if one of them doesn't believe in the virgin birth and so on. We, we shouldn't discourage them right at the start. But what they failed to see was that they were endangering the spiritual health of many others. And you have to take the corporate welfare of the church uh, into consideration. It's not even good for the individual to harbor him in sin. Paul sentenced that man at Corinth to the devil for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved. Now he was not primarily after the destruction of his flesh, he was after the salvation of his spirit. We don't deal with people in the church today that way, if we ever do, just in punishment. We are trying to win them back. That's what Paul was trying to do at Corinth and he did win him back. The brother repented and was reinstated. <clears throat> Of course, if you're just trying to uh, wreak vengeance on somebody and get rid of them, that's awful. Certainly it isn't Christ-like. But sometimes, just as in the home, discipline is necessary to win them back into fellowship. I was pastor for five years of the oldest Baptist church in the South. We had church records there a hundred years old. I used to read through some of them in the old First Baptist Church of Charleston, South Carolina. <clears throat> And I'd read where brother so-and-so was put out of the church for lying. Didn't say prevarication. It's plain old L-Y-I-N-G, lying. Then you'd turn over a couple pages and it would say brother so-and-so came back duly repentant and was restored. They weren't for getting rid of him, but it meant something to be a church member. 
It meant something to be a Christian. You couldn't flirt with Balaamism. Not then. You had to mean business. We do the Balaamites harm as well as ourselves by a false tolerance. They think they're safe when they're awaiting the judgment of God. And if we deal with them, they might judge themselves that they be not judged. We talk about the New Testament being a sufficient rule of faith and practice. Well, it is. But there isn't anything plainer in the New Testament than what to do about Balaamism. The only trouble is we don't do it. And then the spirit of Balaam gets into many a religious body today. Balaam tried to stand in with the Lord and collect a reward from the ungodly. Many a church gets off a fine prayer on Pisgah on Sunday morning and isn't above striking a deal with Balak by the middle of the week. No wonder a cynic wrote, they're praising God on Sunday. They'll be all right on Monday. It's just a little habit they've acquired. You can't deal with iniquity that way. Old Abram turned down the king of Sodom who wanted to make him rich. Abram said, oh no, I won't take your money. You'd be going around all the rest of your life bragging, saying I, I made Abram rich. Well, today the church of the living God takes money from stranger sources than that and lets the devil subsidize the work of God. And all the eloquence of a Balaam on top of Pisgah cannot hide such transgression. Now the essence of this whole business is that Balaamism is just worldliness. Bishop Arthur Moore says sometimes that we have a new word for worldliness. We call it secularism, but same old thing. Just as a rose by any other name smells just as sweet, so worldliness by any other name is just as bad. <clears throat> and here we have set before us in Pergamos Christians and churches in unholy fellowship with this age the popular doctrine that you can be faithful to the master and flirt with Moab and you can't do it. Any church of the Pergamos sort needs a revival and it'll never have it until it repents of its false tolerance and does something about worldliness. And that's what we don't want to do because we want to be popular. You cannot be a Christian and a Balaamite both. You cannot sing there's no other way but the way of the cross. If you're not willing to sing the last verse, then I bid farewell to the way of the world, to walk in it nevermore. You cannot sing beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, if you don't mean the line that says, content to let the world go by. We're trying to keep up with it. You can't sing when I survey the wondrous cross and mean it, Unless you mean that line that says the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. You cannot sing and mean it, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. Unless you mean the next line, for thee all the follies of sin I resign. You cannot sing and mean it, Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul unless you mean the next line, break down every idol, cast out every foe, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so the Christ of the candlestick stands right in this crowd tonight, and you represent many churches, but the first application's to you. 
My dear friend, are you tolerating? You may not even believe Balaamism yourself. You may not even practice Balaamism. But the trouble here was they tolerated it. And the Lord called on them to repent, not for practicing it, but for tolerating the crowd that did practice it. That really ought to give us something to think over today. And he's saying, repent or else. If you don't deal with it, I will. Certainly we ought to deal with it in our lives, first of all. And then in our churches, not in a vindictive way, not in vengeance, not in hardness of spirit, <clears throat> but rather that we may win those and that we may help the weaker brother and the man overtaken with a fault, <clears throat> but they may be brought to repentance and then restored. May the Lord help us to ponder these things in our hearts tonight. And as you go out of here, ask first, do I have any connection with Balaam? He's not dead so far as his work's concerned. Do I tolerate Balaamism in my heart or in my home or in my business or in my church? And then help us to hear the word of the Savior. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said to the churches. Read up now before the meeting tomorrow. About Thyatira, it's another side of a similar problem. Shall we pray? Our Father, we ought to be solemnized tonight in the presence of such a terrific message from our Lord that we've read in thy word. Nothing pleasant here, Lord. Sounds old-fashioned. Sounds out of style. We're not doing much of this today, Lord. We're not dealing with Balaamism in our hearts and homes and in our churches. Oh, Spirit of God, take this word tonight. Hold it before us as a mirror, and when we go out of here, may we not straightway forget what manner of person we are, but having heard the word, may we do something about it, lest we deceive ourselves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.